Well, it's good to see all of you this morning. Uh, one, um, one blessing of a season such as we're in right now, uh, with so much, maybe an unusual amount of sickness about, uh, I think it gets easier to consciously, intentionally thank the Lord when he allows us to come and to gather with his people. Uh, we've got a lot from our number who are not able to be with us because of that. So each Sunday that we can get ready and come, it's another Sunday that the Lord has chosen to make that possible. I'm thankful for the health and safety that he's granted to us to be able to gather together. Uh, we return this morning after a number of weeks of not being in the regular series we've been going through. We return to our study of John's Gospel in the New Testament. So let me invite you as we're beginning to open in your Bibles to John chapter 4. We'll pick up at John 4 verse 1. And this morning we come in John's account to Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. It's yet another place where we really need to have some things in mind that we talked about very early on in this study. We need to remember, for example, what we have said about how intentionally the Apostle John is arranging and recounting this, uh, this story, this account of the ministry of Christ. Uh, so let's just take a minute to refresh our memories on some of those things and to talk about how this section plays in. Uh, we need to remember that John is recounting these events in ways that do more than just tell the individual stories. It certainly does that, but it does more than that. Uh, they draw special attention as well to certain aspects of Christ's ministry. He writes in such a way as to make some things plain for the rest of us uh, who didn't get to walk with Jesus and experience it firsthand. Now, one good way to think about that is to ask yourself the question, how many individuals do you think Jesus talked with during his ministry, during those three or so years? How many individuals do you think he spent time with, had any kind of conversation with, whatever that answer is, uh, it's far more than the number of conversations that are recorded in John's Gospel, wouldn't you say? Quite a bit more. Now that helps us to see, though, that John is choosing what to include in his account, what to include, when to include it, and he makes some of those choices in order that the very choices themselves are going to serve some teaching purposes. That's just good writing. There are several examples of that in chapters 3 and 4 here uh, of, of John. Uh, for example, many commentators see an intentional display, and I think they're right, that there's something intentional going on here uh, in John 3 and John 4 in displaying Jesus' expanding ministry. Uh, because the expansion that we see here mirrors the pattern that is spoken of in several places in the New Testament. You've got, for example, some of the last words in Luke's Gospel that describe that uh, the, the proclamation of Jesus' name is going to go out from Jerusalem to all the nations. So you see that kind of a, of a pattern declared. Jesus himself in Acts 1.8 describes the witness concerning himself going out in three, uh, three steps from Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Have you heard that kind of a pattern described? That's how he describes it in Acts chapter 1. And it's exactly what happens. If you read the book of Acts, you see that this is what happens. Well, by the time we get from John 3.1, uh, 
to John 4.54, the last verse in John 4, we have Jesus' Jesus's teachings reaching Nicodemus in Jerusalem, then a woman in Samaria, as we'll see this morning, and then a Gentile centurion in Cana. It matches exactly the pattern that the gospel is going to go through. Uh, think as well about the two figures that he's interacting with in these chapters, the principal figures. We have Nicodemus in chapter 3, and then we have the Samaritan woman. They could not be more different from one another, could they? He is a man. She is a woman. He is a Jew. She is a hated Samaritan. He is the teacher of Israel, as Jesus called him. She is unnamed. Uh, he belongs to the Sanhedrin itself. She is a nobody. He knows the scriptures. She, as we'll see, especially next week, is immersed in folklore and local tradition. He's sort of the epitome of morality in his circles. She, even among her own people, is the epitome of immorality. He greets Jesus with words of great respect, Nicodemus does, when he came to Jesus. She begins in kind of a brazen and disrespectful way, as we're about to read. It's quite a lopsided picture in Nicodemus' favor in that sense. Yet what are the outcomes going to be that we'll see? He's going to have come to Jesus secretly by night. She will encounter him in broad daylight. Nicodemus, we saw this uh, probably a couple of months ago now, he started the conversation with plenty to say to Jesus. And he is increasingly confused through their conversation. And by the time Jesus is finished with him, Nicodemus is reduced to silence. On the other hand, the Samaritan woman, we're going to see this morning, seems to get more conversant the more she hears from Jesus. And by the end, she will be evangelizing her entire town and quite successfully. These contrasts between them, that John helps us with by putting them right beside each other, notice, become a very powerful example of the way that Jesus in his ministry will bless all the nations of the earth and not just the Jews. We'll see at the end of chapter 4, verses 39 and 41, that many Samaritans are going to put their trust in Jesus because of what's going to happen here. So these are big picture notions that we should bear in mind as we're working through these chapters. For this morning, we're going to get as far as verse 18. So let me read for us John chapter 4, verses 1 to 18 from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John continues in this way. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given, <clears throat> and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. There's something that this account has in common with the other narratives he's given us so far in this gospel. Like each of those, he's just so helpful in the way that he, that he recounts these events. Uh, he narrates and arranges them helpfully. So we're going to follow his lead this morning and structure our time as he has structured the sections. So to give you a preview of where we're going this morning, we'll see this in three pieces. First, verses 1 to 6, we'll see what we could call John's setup for us. John's going to set the scene for us that we're about to be shown. And as we'll see, he's going to give us information in those six verses that we need to know to really appreciate and understand the point of what's going to follow. Second will be verses 7 to 15, and that will move into the account itself, the actual dialogue, and we'll see this as, we could call it, Jesus' setup for her. So we have John's setup for us, but then in 7 to 15, Jesus' setup for her. What I mean is that J Jesus is leading this woman gently and expertly, toward understanding of who he is. But that understanding is going to require a confrontation. And so up to verse 15, he is preparing her, he is leading her into the point of confrontation. And in verses 16 to 18 this morning, we'll find the beginning of that confrontation that will continue next week as well. But let's start by looking at the first six verses. What, what John is doing here in the opening of this account is, is what he did when he told us about the water-to-wine miracle in Cana, when he told us about Jesus' cleansing of the temple. We saw this in both of those, of, those, um, of those accounts from John. He is taking a moment to give us some information that we, the readers, need to know if we're going to appreciate and understand the encounter that's coming up. Now, some of it is simply progressing the narrative for us. The first four verses really just help us to understand why we're in Samaria now instead of down in Judea. When he left off, we were in Judea. 
And so the first four verses carry the story forward from Judea into Samaria. He mentions that Jesus has made the decision to leave Judea as an act of self-preservation. He's realized that he is on, he's gone up a notch or two on the Pharisees' list of, uh, of concerning individuals. And so he's going to depart and go into Galilee. Well, to get there, you have to go through the region of Samaria. Um, it, it, much has been made at points about the fact that Jews would often not do that. They would go out across the Jordan and around in order to not, uh, not have to go through Samaria because they hated the Samaritans so much. And that is true that it happened. However, we have a lot of evidence. Josephus, who wrote in the first century, uh, made very clear that the Jews' typical pattern was still to go through Samaria, even though often some of the more zealous would, would manage to avoid that. But it wasn't unusual. So when verse 4 tells us that he had to go through Samaria, I think it's easiest and best to simply take that as a geographical necessity. So that's why he's on his way through this region. He's, he's going up to the region of Galilee. Verses 5 and 6, though, we need to slow down on a bit because they mention several details that do more than that. It mentions things in verses 5 and 6 that do more than just advance the narrative for us. They actually equip us with information that we need if we're going to appreciate what's about to come. And I want you to notice with me four things in particular that we see in verses 5 and 6 that are important. First, notice how intentional he is in those two verses to mention, he says, the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, he says Jacob's well was there. Just notice how, how intentionally he is giving us that historical information. He's mentioning that because, number one, it's going to come up in their conversation here in just a couple of minutes. But also because Jesus is going to be pointing this woman toward matters of fulfillment. He's pointing her to ways that he is better than the patriarchs of Israel. And that his gifts are better than the gifts that they provided to the people. This is part of Jesus' intent and what he's going to do. And so John helps us here by pointing out these historical realities before we even come into the conversation. Second, notice the weariness of Jesus in verse 6. It explains why he's sitting there, doesn't it? Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. There are at least two, I'll give you two, good reasons not to overlook that. The first maybe is obvious. It's the simple fact that this again emphasizes Jesus' genuine human nature. He goes on this trip. Uh, it's the heat of the day, as we'll see at this point, and he's so tired that he has to sit down. It's good to notice for that reason. But secondly, it's good to notice because I think it adds flavor and significant flavor to the interaction that we're about to witness. I mean, Jesus is about to pursue this woman's soul lovingly and brilliantly and persistently. I mean, he's going to exercise patience with her. He'll say just what needs to be said at just the right moments. He'll deal with a lack of respect that he's due. And he'll do it all while so worn out physically that he has to be sitting down. I don't know. To me, that simply highlights 
even more the kind of man we're dealing with when we're dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's essentially universal, so I don't have to just speak about myself. I can say we, I assume this is true, when we are hungry and tired, what version of us comes out to the people around us? We've talked before in this sort of a setting about the fact that when I'm tired and I sin against those near to me, I, it's not biblical at all to come back to them and say, I'm sorry, I was tired, I just wasn't myself. That's just false. What happened in your tiredness was that a mask slipped a bit and something of the real you was able to come out and be put on display. We learn about ourselves, the real us, when we're hungry and tired, don't we? Jesus can't stand he's so tired. And what comes out? Here he is in a moment like this, and so pure is his love and care for sinners that when in that state, this is what we get from it. This is what we see. You know what that should destroy? It should destroy, I think, that sense that we all get so often of a Jesus who is sitting on his throne in heaven, thinking about me and trying to contain his frustration, steam coming out of his ears like a cartoon character. My friends, that's not the true Jesus. This is the true Jesus who sits here, deals with what he deals with with this woman, pursues her as he pursues her, loves her as he loves her, and that's what's coming out when he's exhausted. It's how he really is toward his people in their sin. An endless supply of gentle patience for those that he came to save. That's what we see on display here. So the next time you're hangry, you can think of this. And you can thank God one more time for penal substitutionary atonement (laughs) and for son of man representation like we saw last week. He looks upon me with approval, because he sees me clothed in the righteousness of my representative. And this is him on display. That's the second thing to notice in verses 5 and 6. The third would be this. Notice the time of day. He says in verse 6, it was about the sixth hour. This is high noon. That's what this is. It's hot. It's bright. He mentions that here, because if he doesn't, we're not going to raise our eyebrow in verse 7 like we're supposed to. A woman comes walking up to draw water. If I don't know that it's high noon, that's not going to confuse me. It's supposed to confuse me. What is she doing there? That's not when women come to to draw. This well is 100 feet deep. You don't go in the heat of the day and pull up uh, your water at the heat of the day. The women of the town came in the morning, and they came in the evening, and they came in groups. Here she comes at the heat of the day, and she comes by herself. We're supposed to notice that. We're supposed to recognize that there's something off here with this woman. Already from this point, there's a reason that she is by herself, separate from the other women, and seeming to plan her daily schedule in order to see to it that that would happen. We're supposed to have our our, uh, attention uh, 
grabbing hold of that already. So these are details for us to notice in verses 5 and 6. Thank you, Apostle John, for being so good at setting us up to really get the story before he gives it to us. Isn't it amazing, by the way, just, just thinking about this, that such could be the, the Holy Spirit's guiding of the writing of Scripture that we, all this time later, could read stories about their day-to-day events and we could actually understand some of what's going on. Cultures change so drastically often. But he gives us what we need to understand what's being discussed, what's going on. I'm grateful to God for his, uh, what he's given us in his word. Uh, now, in verse 7, the interaction begins between Jesus and this woman. What we're going to see here are three sets of dialogue, three back-and-forth statements made between them. And I want us to look at each of these individually. Uh, What we need to notice is the battle that's going on here. Did you know that there's a battle going on between Jesus and this woman? There's no swords drawn or anything like that, but there's very much uh, something of a battle here. Uh, Essentially a battle about what's going to be fixated on in this conversation. What nature of what reality are we going to fix on? What what realm of what sort of problem are we going to discuss today? Jesus is calling her to a certain level of thinking and speaking, and she's going to be very resistant to this. It will get clearer and clearer as we go through these three sets of statements. Let me read again verses 7 to 9 here as we hear the first one. Look with me there. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, there's, by the way, there's been some good work there on, on how to understand that last statement. It's something of a debate. Uh, but you shouldn't hear from that some kind of a notion that Jews had no interactions ever with Samaritans. That's not what's meant here when it says that they have no dealings with. It literally means Jews do not use with Samaritans. Uh, and what, what I think we're supposed to understand is, her confusion is, you have nothing with which to do this drawing and drinking, and you're asking me for a drink. We, we don't share drinking utensils. Didn't anyone ever tell you that? Uh, remember, his, his disciples are going into the town to buy their food, presumably to eat it, they, they have laws on the books. You can eat Samaritan dry food. You can't eat their wet food. But there are ways you can interact. There's laws on the books for Jews about how you have a meal with a Samaritan, what you pray about. And that assumes they're going to be doing those things. So they have interactions. But this is something particular because it's particularly personal. You want to drink after me? She's, she's even almost offended at this notion, and she raises the objection to him. Now, what I want us to do here is focus on one particular distinction in what is said by each of them. What happens here in this first of the three back and forths is that Jesus shows disregard for what divides them while she fixates on the differences between them ethnically. He does what Jews would not have done. He speaks to her in public, alone, and he asks to share her drinking utensils. She, quite directly, as you might notice, doesn't let that go. She calls him out on it. 
Now, it's important at this point to recognize it's not as if Jesus doesn't know about these social norms, is it? He knows. And I just think it's fascinating. He doesn't bring them up by speaking about them, by speaking about the realities that divide them. He's just brilliant. Uh, That would produce maybe a hypothetical conversation. He brings them up by addressing her while refusing to consider them at all. He brings it up by simply saying, hey, give me a drink. Well, that gets it going. That gets the conversation going, which is his intention. So we see how it started off here in the first dialogue. Look at the second. Now, verses 10 to 12. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Living water means running water, a stream, a river. That's what they mean by living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And stop there. How does this advance things? Notice she had just brought up before this a deep, worldly, ethnic reality that divides them. And in his response that we just read, he again refuses to let his treatment of her be impacted by those temporal realities. And instead, what he does is, he points her to realities that are bigger than them, that go beyond those things. And importantly, he invites her to participate in them. If you knew who it was who was saying this to you, you would have asked him, and he would have given you this water. He invites her participation with him. It's interesting to think what Jesus meant there in verse 10. Some suggest that when he mentions the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God, some suggest that he's talking actually about the scriptures there because the Jews do often in their writings refer to the Old Testament as God's gift to them. If that were what he meant, then he'd be saying, ma'am, if you only knew your Bible and if you put the pieces together as to who I am, you would be asking of me right now. And that would certainly be true, and that's interesting. I think it's more likely, given how the conversation's about to develop, that what he's doing here about this gift of God is he's introducing her to the notion that there is a water gift out there of some kind that God offers to her that she doesn't have and that he, Jesus, has the means to give her. There is a gift of God that you have not received, and you don't know about it. If you knew about it, you would be asking me for it. And just notice again, her response is to return the conversation to the temporal and to historical realities. In a couple of ways, she misunderstands what he means by water, doesn't she? She thinks he's talking either about the water in the well or about some other nearby water source that he claims to have access to. So she gets stuck there on that temporal concept. But also, this is where she now brings up the historical reality of Jacob. Jacob in this well. He's he's offered her living water. And her question to him in response is, 
Are you claiming to know where a stream or river is around here? When Jacob was alive, the patriarch Jacob, when he was alive and he was here to get water, he had to dig this well to find it. Do you think you're better than Jacob? Now, the claim here on her part is really important for us this morning. Can you hear that what she's saying is to Jesus, you couldn't possibly provide a better provision than the patriarch Jacob did. Has God blessed us? Yeah, look at this well. He blessed us to the patriarch Jacob. Could you do any better? God has provided for us. What more could be provided? Can you feel it, or her tensions rising? Can you feel that we're getting closer and closer to a confrontation here? And in the third interaction, in verses 13 to 15, notice as I reread it that Jesus does not insult Jacob. He does not insult the well. Far from it. These are gifts from God. Instead, he's going to ask her to lift up her gaze to needs and fulfillments that go beyond what God has provided by the patriarchs. He says in verse 13, we read this, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Think of what he said. Jacob the patriarch was a blessing to you. He gave you this well, and it quenches thirst, but it doesn't satisfy. You're going to be thirsty again. What I'm telling you is that God has a gift that is something more than this. There's something more for you. And it comes through me. I have water that will satisfy without end. Now, I think this is a moment to pause from their conversation and to sort of have our own conversation. Uh, we should clarify what he's offering her here. What is it that he's talking about? There's, I think, a general thing of it that's fairly obvious, but there's something more specific he's saying that is maybe less so. In general, can you tell that what he's talking about is salvation, isn't he? Salvation that entails a great number of glorious realities. It entails forgiveness and freedom. All of the benefits that come from union with Christ. This is what he's holding out to this woman. Last chapter, he beckoned to Nicodemus to enter the kingdom of God by believing in his son. And with this thirst metaphor, that's in a general way what Jesus is offering to this woman as well. The thirst that mankind dies of is thirst for God. Our sin has separated us from God. But we were made for fellowship with God. And so we go through our life dying of a thirst that we cannot quench until we come to him through his son. It's the thirst that we die of. Jesus does not offer to remove the need for the water because we were made for that water. He offers to give us the never-ending supply of it. D.A. Carson said it well at this point. He said, the living water Jesus gives bans thirst forever in the one who drinks it. 
This thirst is not for natural water, but for God, for eternal life in the presence of God. And the thirst is met not by removing this aching desire, but by pouring out the Spirit. Indeed, this water will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, clearly a reference to the Spirit who alone gives life. And on that note, that's where we begin to need to get more specific than just the general statement that he's offering salvation. We can shift from hearing him generally to catching a very specific reference. When Jesus talks about God's gift of living water, what he's specifically talking about is the giving of the Holy Spirit. I'll ask you to look over, this won't be hard to find, John 7, maybe just a page away for you. I'll read John 7, verses 37 to 39. And I'll read it because he's going to give the same metaphor there, but it will even explain what he's pointing to directly. John 7, 37. On the last day of the great feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now what does that say about when this giving of the Spirit is going to happen? Well, it will happen after Jesus is glorified. We read about it in the book of Acts. He tells his disciples to wait until the Spirit is given. This is why in verse 14 of our text, coming back here, you see the future tense. He speaks of, he says, the water that I will give to him. He's not representing himself as going around giving out this water right now. He is announcing what God is going to do in redemptive history when Christ has accomplished all things through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. There are gifts that will be given. To have life in the Spirit is to have full, satisfying access to God and thus fulfillment of our greatest thirst. The thirst, in fact, I think you could say that all of our thirsts are leading us toward. So that was sort of a long description there. In this third back and forth, what we've seen is we've seen Jesus again insist on leading her to consideration of a higher plane of reality, a a greater need. He says, seek the living water that satisfies, which I can give to you. And her response to this, we read in verse 15, it seems to show a softening, perhaps an interest developing. Maybe a curiosity you could even think of it as. Although still her mind is catching, isn't it? On this attempted jump he's trying to get her to make from the literal to something higher. The jump away from the literal water conversation. She still seems to stumble there. She's hoping to not have to come back to this well to draw water anymore. Listen to what Herman Ritterboss wrote on this. He says, what at first seemed utterly absurd to her is now beginning to assume the form of something miraculous, of which the stranger apparently knows the secret and that perhaps might be useful to her. But to judge by what else she says, she still seems not to understand what Jesus wants to give her. So there's the beginning of a desire, and yet a continued hesitation. There's a block here for her. 
Now, what is Jesus going to do about that? What, what will he do to snap her attention away from the immediate need that she has, the immediate physical thirst? How can he force her eternal need into her attention, which is her separation from God? We get that answer starting in verse 16. And this is the final piece for this morning, the beginning of the confrontation, verses 16 to 18. It's just brilliant. Let's begin by reading this uh, approach he's decided to take. How will he bring her eternal need into her attention? Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here, end quote. That's his, that's his plan. It's maybe even more impressive than the way he created so full of a conversation just by asking her to give him a drink. And you can tell how impressive this is because of the effect that, <laughs> that it has um, on her. This is a Samaritan woman living in a Samaritan region. The Samaritans only regarded the first five books of the Old Testament as scripture. They rejected the rest. But in this case, it works just fine because the first five books contain the clear Old Testament teachings that are relevant to her situation. The Ten Commandments are there. The condemnation of adultery is there. Deuteronomy is there with its statements about the defilement of divorce. Being a Samaritan didn't mean there was confusion or permissiveness about these sorts of sexual and marital ethics that her situation is about to present itself. And Jesus gives these seven words that reveal exactly why she's coming to draw water alone in the heat of the day. She's an outcast. She's an outcast from her people. She's been long identified as a moral leper. And she knows the charges are justified. He asks her to go get her husband and bring him here. And all of a sudden, this very talkative woman gets very quiet. Jesus' request gets a, in the original here, a three-word response. Four words for us. I have no husband. One writer says this, her talkative nature is checked in the fewest possible words. <laughs> in the fewest possible words, she tries to stop a dangerous subject at once. And for us, it's something of a cliffhanger uh, this morning because Jesus starts to do something here that we'll see him do next week. He begins to confront her directly with the reality of who she is dealing with. Look again at verse 17. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. We'll do more here next week in finishing out this account. But for this morning, there's one thing only that I would point out. As we see Jesus respond to her like this, <clears throat> um, and that is, let me invite you to behold your Savior. When he was too tired even to stand up, 
So determined was he in his loving pursuit of his people. So full of patience. So understanding of their weaknesses and failures. And so willing to bear with all of it. He knew this about her before he began the conversation. He knew this about her as he desired to pursue her soul unto salvation. It did not repel him. He came to save sinners. That's why he came. He came willingly and joyfully, and he came to save sinners. So the presence of sin in the life of this woman does not repel Jesus. He came for such a one. She's surprised by this revelation that he knew this, but he knew it the whole time. He is willing to bear with all of it as he pursues us to salvation, conversion, transformation that he has intended for his people. We see it in this interaction with this woman. My friends, is it any different now? Is it different with you or me? I suppose the only difference would be that he's not tired anymore. He is, he is forever in a glorified human body. He doesn't, he's not dealing with the need to sit down and rest his legs at this point, as he bears with you and me. So there's that, I suppose. But we see in these verses then, and maybe in this last response that he gives, this revelation of his knowledge of her sin, we see something about his pursuit of us. Not only his capacity to pursue us and to bear with us in his love, but also his determination to, as he's pursuing us, to do it, listen, by setting our minds on eternity as that which drives us. That's how he is pursuing her. He is calling her to think about higher things to see deeper needs, to see deeper provision than just how God has provided for us in the here and now. My friends, as we hear our Lord call this woman to eternal mindedness, may we ourselves be called to the same. I could say it as a specific of our age, but that would be false. There's never been an age in human history where we've not been tempted to take our eyes off of the eternal and to fixate them, fix our emotions, fix our trust, fix our sense of peace, locate our peace on that which is happening in the here and now, in our age. And those are places where we bear responsibility and we have obligations and things matter deeply. But we live in a place that is passing away, in an age that is passing away. If our hope is here, then we're in a lot of trouble. If our peace is here, we're in a lot of trouble. And Jesus would come to us and say, this is unnecessary. This is, this is short-sighted. I come and I show you a perspective of eternity. The youth are about to start a study for this year on the Sermon on the Mount. And we hear Jesus say, at a point there to the crowds. These words, maybe you've, you're familiar with these. Do not live lives, I'm paraphrasing, filled with anxiety for your temporal needs. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. What does he say to do instead? Seek first 
That means the first priority. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And what we are seeing here this morning is that the kind of life that is lived in determined nearness to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what is characteristic of one who has heard from the Lord, who has seen with the perspective that he would give, and who has come to him for the waters of life. I think it's timely. This leads us very well this morning into our sharing together of the Lord's table that we're about to enjoy. Because that nearness is a blood-bought nearness, isn't it? We're about to engage in an intimate act of nearness with our Savior, nearness with his people. How did we come by this nearness? It was purchased with the blood of Christ. It's not an access that we can force our way into. And it's not an access... It's not an access that we would even desire if Christ had not pursued us and paid for us with his blood. What we prepare to observe together here displays realities of fellowship and even of familial nearness between us and our Lord. And this morning I invite you to meditate on that fact, the fact that Jesus chose the nearest of relationships with you when he knew everything about you. Romans 5, beginning in verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Let's pray together. Father, we this morning are moved by your word to awe and gratitude and love as we consider how you have loved us in Christ. This passage that you've laid before us brings to our minds our own unworthiness, to be sure. But in light of how he has treated this woman, it pushes us past that reality of our unworthiness to the realization that you never planned to love us because of our worthiness. But rather because of what a merciful, kind, and gracious God you are. And now, Lord, help us to dwell on the realities that are ours and are ours forever because of that gracious gift of your Son. And help us to be blessed and emboldened and strengthened as we remember again this month in celebrating the Lord's table that we have a standing appointment at your banquet table on the day that you are finished with this present age. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn 252. Stand up. So determined was he in his loving pursuit of his people, so full of patience, 
so understanding of their weaknesses and failures, and so willing to bear with all of it. He knew this about her before he began the conversation. He knew this about her as he desired to pursue her soul unto salvation. It did not repel him. He came to save sinners. That's why he came. He came willingly and joyfully, and he came to save sinners. So the presence of sin in the life of this woman does not repel Jesus. He came for such a one. She's surprised by this revelation that he knew this, but he knew it the whole time. He is willing to bear with all of it as he pursues us to salvation, conversion, transformation that he has intended for his people. We see it in this interaction with this woman. My friends, is it any different now? Is it different with you or me? I suppose the only difference would be that he's not tired anymore. He is, he is forever in a glorified human body. He doesn't, he's not dealing with the need to sit down and rest his legs at this point, as he bears with you and me. So there's that, I suppose. But we see in these verses then, and maybe in this last response that he gives, this revelation of his knowledge of her sin, we see something about his pursuit of us. Not only his capacity to pursue us and to bear with us in his love, but also his determination to, as he's pursuing us, to do it, listen, by setting our minds on eternity as that which drives us. That's how he is pursuing her. He is calling her to think about higher things to see deeper needs, to see deeper provision than just how God has provided for us in the here and now. My friends, as we hear our Lord call this woman to eternal mindedness, may we ourselves be called to the same. I could say it as a specific of our age, but that would be false. There's never been an age in human history where we've not been tempted to take our eyes off of the eternal and to fixate them, fix our emotions, fix our trust, fix our sense of peace, locate our peace on that which is happening in the here and now, in our age. And those are places where we bear responsibility and we have obligations and things matter deeply. But we live in a place that is passing away, in an age that is passing away. If our hope is here, then we're in a lot of trouble. If our peace is here, we're in a lot of trouble. And Jesus would come to us and say, this is unnecessary. This is, this is short-sighted. I come and I show you a perspective of eternity. The youth are about to start a study for this year on the Sermon on the Mount. And we hear Jesus say, at a point there to the crowds. These words, maybe you've, you're familiar with these. Do not live lives, I'm paraphrasing, filled with anxiety for your temporal needs. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. What does he say to do instead? Seek first. That means a first priority. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. 
And what we are seeing here this morning is that the kind of life that is lived in determined nearness to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what is characteristic of one who has heard from the Lord, who has seen with the perspective that he would give, and who has come to him for the waters of life. I think it's timely. This leads us very well this morning into our sharing together of the Lord's table that we're about to enjoy. Because that nearness is a blood-bought nearness, isn't it? We're about to engage in an intimate act of nearness with our Savior, nearness with his people. How did we come by this nearness? It was purchased with the blood of Christ. It's not an access that we can force our way into. And it's not an access... It's not an access that we would even desire if Christ had not pursued us and paid for us with his blood. What we prepare to observe together here displays realities of fellowship and even of familial nearness between us and our Lord. And this morning I invite you to meditate on that fact, the fact that Jesus chose the nearest of relationships with you when he knew everything about you. Romans 5, beginning in verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Let's pray together. Father, we this morning are moved by your word to awe and gratitude and love as we consider how you have loved us in Christ. This passage that you've laid before us brings to our minds our own unworthiness, to be sure. But in light of how he has treated this woman, it pushes us past that reality of our unworthiness to the realization that you never planned to love us because of our worthiness. But rather because of what a merciful, kind, and gracious God you are. And now, Lord, help us to dwell on the realities that are ours and are ours forever because of that gracious gift of your Son. And help us to be blessed and emboldened and strengthened as we remember again this month in celebrating the Lord's table that we have a standing appointment at your banquet table on the day that you are finished with this present age. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn 252.